Food is fuel for your body, your mind, and definitely your sport. But let's face it, nutrition is confusing and the expectations on girls and women to be thin and have a six pack are exhausting. If you've ever been frustrated with your body, confused about nutrition, obsessed with eating healthy or guilty when you don't, underate, overate, or overtrained and overwhelmed with all the pressure, then this podcast is for you. Nutrition can be easy. You can take control of it, but it might start with letting go of control by asking for help and making a change. I'm Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, sports dietitian and owner of Rise Up Nutrition, where I empower female athletes to overcome nutrition concerns and perform at their highest level, to stop being confused by all the mixed or harmful messages, and finally have confidence in your body as a fierce, fit, and fueled female athlete. Hey fans, welcome to another episode of the Female Athlete Nutrition Podcast. I'm Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, and I'm here today with Chris McClung. He's a running coach and co-owner of Rogue Running, a company with locations in Austin and Dallas, and he specializes in training adult runners for all distances from 5K to marathon and beyond. Chris is also a host for the Rogue Running Podcast and the Clean Sport Collective Podcast. He's been running himself for over 20 years and coaching adult athletes for the last 15 years. Chris is passionate about the power of running to change lives. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm excited to talk to you about all things running and supplements and clean sport. Yes, thanks for having me, Lindsay. Yeah. And as you just mentioned, this is what you do. You do podcasts all the time. I'd love to know really quickly, like with with two podcasts and juggling that, how many, uh, how often are you behind the mic like this throughout the week? Oh, at least typically at least three times because I not only do those two podcasts you mentioned, but I also coach a group through a podcast platform. And so I have a virtual group with athletes all over the world, actually. And I record also a podcast for them to talk about their weekly training. And so at least three times a week, sometimes more than that, depending on if I'm doing episodes in advance and things like that. Yeah. Or being a guest like today. So. <laughs> or being a guest, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. And so I'd love to dive into your your running history first. You know, what what first attracted you to the sport of running? Well, I grew up playing soccer, actually, for most of my life. Played for 16 years, club soccer at, at a high level. And decided in college to step away from that sport, knowing that it was going to be time at some point And I needed a way to stay in shape. Fortunately, I had a roommate in college, our sweet mate actually in college, who was running at that time. He had run cross country in high school, but wasn't doing it in college, but had started to run on his own and was training for a 10K in Houston where I went to college. And so he convinced me to sign up for this 10K with him and trained for it with him. And fortunately, 16 years on the soccer field, I had a little bit of aerobic development from that and totally. took to it relatively naturally. But it became for me at that time, just really a competitive outlet competing initially with myself and at various times with others and with my sweet mate who we ended up being pretty compatible from that perspective. And so it became that outlet, which also allowed me to obviously stay in shape and, and stay active after I finished my soccer career. And eventually it became something that I love for much, you know, many more reasons than that beyond just the competitive side. I love obviously just the activity of it now and the, the idea of moving through space and of course, I get. To, I also love doing it with others and the camaraderie that comes with it. 
Yeah, totally. I think that's one of the best things about running is kind of no matter what sport you did growing up, there was probably some sort of running component. So you can transition into that. And it's such a social thing and and things you can do in your adult life. And so it's, you know, amazing that you get to do that as a coach now bringing people together of, you know, various different ages in their adult life to get them to run and compete and stay active. At what point did you, you know, transition from just being somebody who loves running to becoming a coach? So my coaching career actually started actually due to injury, my own personal injury. I I did that 10K that I mentioned, really fell in love with the sport, decided shortly after that that I needed to run a marathon. I'm not sure why I went straight from the 10K to the marathon, but my... I don't think you're alone there. Lots of people do that. <laughs> right. My my dad had, had done a marathon in my earlier life. And so I, that's something I always had to, in the back of my mind. So I jumped straight to the marathon shortly after graduating from college, got injured, actually training for my first marathon, ended up with a stress fracture in my tibia because I was doing everything wrong. I was going too hard all the time, too much, too fast, and ended up with a stress fracture that knocked me out for a couple of months and actually re-injured it coming back to training and ended up being out again for, for longer. And so I made all the mistakes that a rookie would make in training for their first marathon. And, and after that injury, with more time on my hand while I was, hands while I was waiting to recover from that injury, I needed something to do. And I became obsessed with the idea that I would never let that happen to me again. And so at the time, and I'm dating myself, you could go into Barnes and Noble and sit on the beanbag chairs and just read books in the new bookstore. Yeah. And so I would go there and I would read everything I could find about running, not only coaching, but also just anything about the sport from a nonfiction perspective that was fascinating to me. So I just dove into running coaching philosophy and started to educate myself so that I could train myself in a way that would, so that I could stay healthy and hopefully get, get faster. And at that time, I also became interested in the sport as a fan following the elite level of running as well to try to understand what they were doing to perform and stay healthy along the way. And so that became, that began my coaching journey. And from there, you know, I be, I just really became self-educated, I read everything I could about running, started coaching myself using those tools. And eventually after three or four years, friends would ask me, to coach them. And so I started coaching friends. And then during grad school, I started coaching adult groups for the first time, which would have been in 2004, 2005 timeframe. I trained a group in my grad school for their first 10K, many of them. And a few twists and turns from there in other careers in business and came back to came back to full-time coaching in 2010 with Rogue Running, which is my current my current business. And I've been doing it for the last almost 12 years through that, through that company and have trained literally at this point, thousands of people for, for all distances. And it's just become an absolute passion. And in many ways for me, what I consider a life calling. Yeah. You know, I really like, you know, we had a physiotherapist, Brody Sharp on this podcast back in the summer and he said, which I'll never forget his quote was that running is the most dangerous sport in the world because of how many people get injured. It's like 80% of runners get injured within any given year is what he said. I'll link that episode in the show notes. Yeah, I've talked but to what I, myself. Oh yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So, 
you know, what I love about what you just said, though, is that during a time of injury, which can be really hard on so many runners is, you know, you, you still could dive into the sport and be passionate about it just in different ways, you know, and that really was almost the push for you in this amazing career that you've made for yourself. Yeah, it's crazy to think that that injury became a turning point that would eventually completely change my life and and give me this passion and career that I have now. But it did. And if I think back to all of the times where I've had injuries, fortunately, I've had no others. Tibial stress fractures, I figured that one out. But but every time you get injured, you always learn things that ultimately take you to a different place and many times a higher place afterwards. And it's hard to take those lessons in the moment, but if you're patient with it, they will come. Absolutely. And this is really fitting with your your mission statement that I've you know read on the internet and, and heard through your podcast, your mission of connect, challenge, and inspire each other to become better humans through running and just really using the sport of running to to inspire and motivate and connect and challenge people. What what would you say, you mentioned earlier, your coaching philosophy. What would you say are some of the foundational principles of your coaching philosophy? Well, I am very much a Arthur Lydiard-based coach in a, t- in a sense that I believe in the power of volume and mileage to develop an aerobic capacity that allows you to go faster because running becomes about the the limiting reagent in respiration, which is oxygen. And so the more we can get oxygen from the air to our working muscles, the faster we can go. And I believe, as he did, that you have to run more in order to build aerobic capacity, mostly at easy efforts in order to then reach your full potential. So that would be the main underpinning of what I believe from a coaching perspective Obviously, with that, you also have to balance stress and rest. And so I'm a big proponent in making sure that recovery is an important part of your programming because we don't get fit when we run fast. We get fit when we recover from running fast. And so you have to balance those things appropriately in training. And then as he believed, I'm also a big believer in periodization, which is that you have to periodize your work. So the work that you do early in a training cycle looks different than what you do late in a training cycle. And the work that you do across training cycles should be periodized so that you can ultimately build to a higher place. Many people in our sport get stuck in a rut where they're training for the same distance over and over again, like the marathon, for example. But I'm a big believer in balance so that you have to work the distance like the marathon, but also come back to the fast stuff, the 5K and 10K in order to optimize all of it. So those are my more technical principles. And then beyond that, I'm a huge believer in the power of team. I think running is only a solo sport if you let it be. And and if that's what you want it to be for you, that's totally fine. I've been in that place myself, but but I believe you can get to a higher place if you surround yourself with others that are pushing themselves as well. And then let that power of community take you wherever it might go. Yeah. And you guys over at Rogue Running, you have quite the team. You have lots of coaches, you know, lots of people, lots of locations. So it's, you know, it's really built up. Yeah, we have about a thousand athletes in our programming across our two locations and then another hundred plus that train with us virtually literally all over the world from Australia to the UK to all over the US. And so it's it's a pretty cool and powerful community. And there's little diff- different flavors of it depending on the coaches that you have. We have over 40 different coaches that coach those groups and it's all 
for the most part, group group based training. So always different flavors of the program, depending on the coach and, and the, so the specific group. But the ethos is the same, which is that we have a group of people that are not satisfied with where they are, that want to get faster, that are willing to work hard to do it, and that also work together to do it. It's pretty powerful. Absolutely. And and with group-based training or really just, you know, as a running coach, since this is the female athlete nutrition podcast, do you have any differences in how you coach women compared to men, whether it be down to the, you know, the nitty gritty science of their training and, and adaptation or even just kind of more behaviorally, you know, are there any differences that you've learned or, you know, picked up along the way? It's interesting. I, I, I struggle with that question a little bit because yes, there are differences at the macro level, but at the micro level, I'm a big believer in the power of the individual too. And even within women, there are differences in the individual female and how they might respond to different stimuli. We have a, actually a dedicated women's focus group called the She Squad that's virtual. And we're big proponents of Dr. Stacey Sims's book Roar and her perspectives on the differences for women in coaching and particularly how things manifest and change over time with perimenopause and menopause and things like that. And so there are certainly those components that we bring into our coaching, but above and beyond that, I know that each individual is still different. You know, I've coached, for example, a bunch of women through pregnancy and in those situations, oftentimes we throw out the goals and we focus simply on the health of the mom and the baby. And in, and I used to actually write programs for that. But then what I've learned over time is that because everybody responds differently to that that period of time, they can't really write a program and expect it to actually be followed because you have to adapt to how the mom is progressing through the pregnancy and how she handles each of those different stages. Plus, obviously, the mental element might change as as she goes through that process as well. And so, you know, so typically now I, I do that in very small chunks, in chunks of just a couple of weeks at a time so that we can adapt to how she might be feeling in the moment. And if I've coached 20 women through pregnancy, then I've coached 20 different women through pregnancy because each one has had a different experience ultimately. And so, so that's one thing ultimately is that you have to coach the individual and whether that individual is male, male or female, you're going to have different circumstances. I'm also a big believer in coaching the full human. I obviously I talked about the technical training perspectives that I have, but I think the mental component of training is so important. And, you know, you mentioned in my intro that I believe in the power of running to change lives. And that's true because it's not just you're training a physical human and a body, you're training the whole person and you have to take into account the whole person, which means understanding their motivations, which means understanding their constraints in terms of their life and the balance that they must create. It means understanding their why and what, why they want to achieve their certain goals. And in, pro- in approaching coaching that way and in approaching each individual that way, then I've found that I've been able to coach a diverse group and meet their needs and still allow them to get to their goals. At the very specific level, as I mentioned, there are certainly things that I that I talk about and and consider differently when women reach various stages, whether that be pregnancy, which I already referenced, or sometimes in perimenopause or menopausal situations, you have to adjust 
based on how that woman is addressing that part of life and how their body is responding. And so those things I certainly bring in as needed based on the individual. And so it's, yes, 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 there are differences, but it's more complicated, I guess, than that. I totally agree with you. And and even from my perspective on the nutrition side of things, and I am always preaching about the differences in nutrition between men and women, really because we've only just started talking about it probably in the last five or so years, you know, even when I went through schooling to become a dietitian, like we never even considered that scientific studies that were done on men might have different results on women. And so, you know, we're talking about it a lot now, but I think no matter what, at the end of the day, I still agree with you from a nutrition side of things too, that it's like, well, if you're, you're treating the individual, right, you're not just treating the, the sex, it's, it's, at the end of the day, you treat the individual, you coach the individual, you think about nutrition because women across the board don't have all the same hormone levels. They don't have, you know, all the same responses to training. So I think that's the answer no matter what. Yeah, but it's an important topic and I appreciate the focus of your podcast on it because I think it needs to be talked about more, not just in the context of what the individual needs, but also in the context of how we talk about weight and diet in the context of performance because that part of our sport has been broken for a long time. I I did a podcast recently called The Myth of Race Weight because I'm a big believer that race weight is a a myth, is a made-up concept that is a legacy of our sport that needs to be discarded. And it's crazy how passionately people disagree with me. I know. (laughs) Uh, about that of all genders of, you know, coaches, athletes, I've had people come at me with all sorts of anger and passion over trying to dispel this idea that race weight is a thing. And we can talk about that if you want to, but it is, there are some deeply ingrained perspectives in our sport that I think are just dangerous and sometimes flat out wrong. And so it's important that we talk about these topics. Yeah, let, let's go ahead and go there, if you don't mind. Um, I'd love to talk about race weight. One of the things that I always say when people ask me if I believe in, in an ideal race weight is I say, you know, the ideal weight for running is going to be the one that keeps you healthy, uh, healthy enough to run over time. And because I think the myth, like you said, is that lighter equals faster. So let me try and shed some weight to take some time off. But then that can actually result in not having a great performance or resulting in under recovery. And you said earlier, I wrote it down, actually, you get fit when you recover from running fast. So we don't want to be, you know, jeopardizing that. So that's kind of my philosophy is, is that I don't, you know, ultimately don't believe in an ideal race weight. But when it comes down to it, it's, it's the weight that keeps your body the healthiest so that this is something you can continue to do over time without injury and, and, and hurt. But yeah, I'd love to know from a coaching perspective, some of your other thoughts on that ideal race weight. Yeah. And I would argue that we can't know what that number is that our body knows. And that, that, that I think the biggest challenge that most people perhaps don't appreciate in this area is the fact that that will change over time Yeah, because of the processes of how ages, you know, age changes your body, how hormones change your, your body as they change, how you might even change within the seasons of the year. I can tell you personally, as someone who lives and trains in a very hot and humid summer climate, my body, as I've observed it over the years, will naturally carry 
extra water weight in the summer so that I can handle the sweat associated with the summers of heat and humidity that I face here in Austin, Texas. And that has evolved and changed over time how much my body might carry there. And so I could actually, you know, within a year see fluctuations in my weight just simply because of the seasons and the environment around me. And, you know, when we, when we manage to raise weight, we're managing to an output. And so what I tell people to focus on is we, we shouldn't focus on the outputs. We should focus on the inputs. What are the healthy inputs that are going to get us to perform? I can also tell you from personal experience, I've run my current marathon PR of two hours and 45 minutes twice in my life. And I happened to weigh myself before both races. And those two outcomes had uh, weights associated with them that were 10 pounds apart. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Different stages of your life. Yeah. yeah. Di- different stages. One was when I was 24 and one was when I was 38. And so different stages of life. I also, you know, know that you might even within a day because of water weight changes and that and see fluctuations. And so when you manage to await, you're assuming you know better. And what the reality is, is that your body knows better. So if you focus simply on the healthy inputs, the healthy inputs of training, the healthy inputs of what you're putting in your body, then you will get healthy and positive outcomes, but you can't manage to a number. That's when we start to get into trouble and, and it becomes dangerous potentially. Absolutely. And another thing that I like that you just said about your own, you know, kind of personal story, and thank you for sharing that, is that when it comes to your weight and running, you've kind of just observed over the years, right? Like, oh, okay, well, I ran this PR at this weight. And last time I ran that PR at that weight, it's just an observation. It's not something that you're immediately trying to act on or say that one is right, one is wrong, one's better than the other, just an observation. Unfortunately, I think this is where um, young runners get into trouble because they don't have as many like data points in their life so far to just observe um, and be curious. So they've got just this one data point of, well, when I was 18 and this weight, I ran, you know, at that. And instead of kind of seeing those fluctuations throughout their life seasons, years and things like that. And so just as you said, weight changes all the time throughout life up, down, stay stable sometimes. And I think if we can just take that mindset of observing and being curious and learning rather than being too quick to try and change. And like you said, assume that you know better than your body. I think that's probably the best way. And I think I I just want to say for those younger runners, like, you know, when you do hit a weight that's maybe your highest that you've ever been yet, I mean, think about it when you're 10 years down the road, you don't, now you have a multitude of, you know, weights that you'll know more about yourself. And again, not saying that anything is right or wrong, just, you know, the older we get, the more information we get about our body and the more we can respect the process that it's going through. So ride the wave, go through that process, be curious, observe over the years. Yeah. Yes. Well, Chris, I definitely want to get into, I, I could probably just keep talking to you about running a lot because, you know, that's my sport passion as well. But I really want to get into the meat and potatoes of the Clean Sport Collective and your work there. You've definitely been a leading figure in the fight for clean sport and notably your work with the Clean Sport Collective, which is one of your two podcasts that you host as well. Um, so I was wondering if we can just take a moment for you to share what the Clean Sport Collective is for those who don't know. 
Yes, the Clean Sport Collective is an organization, nonprofit, 501c3 organization that was founded in November of 2016 by Shannon Burnett and Kara Goucher with the idea that they wanted to create an organization that would advocate for and educate people on the topic of clean sport, which is the idea of performing without the aid of performance enhancing drugs or substances or processes. And that organization was born out of really Shanna, who is Kara's agent, her passion for the topic because of Kara's journey in the sport where she was in an organization at the Nike Organ Project that was doing questionable things. She spoke out about that, told the truth about that. And obviously now Alberta Salazar, her her prior coach is, is now serving a, a ban because of those practices under his watch at the Nike Oregon Project. And so she saw a need for an independent organization that would advocate for the topic outside of the traditional governing bodies in the sport, like the World Anti-Doping Agency and the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, because of the conflicts that exist within those organizations, as they're often tied to political aims and financial means that can potentially corrupt the process from that perspective. So that began in 2016 with the idea that we wanted to to advocate and educate. And as a part of that, get athletes, organizations, coaches to sign the Clean Sport Collective pledge to be proactive about the topic instead of just finding the cheats, instead allowing that clean athlete and or individual in the sport to stand up and say, hey, I'm doing this the right way so that we can flip the conversation from just finding the cheats to being able to know and and have belief and power behind those athletes that want to stand up and take a stand for clean sport. And so that began in 2016. And, you know, you'll you'll see all manner of athletes that jumped on board at that time. Emma Coburn and Molly Huddle and many others were a part of the initial launch of that. And then in, in 2019, I got involved as a podcaster. Actually, I'd interviewed Kara a couple of times for the podcast, worked with Shanna on a few different things. And so they started talking to me about wanting to do a podcast for the Clean Sport Collective to give a, a platform for clean athletes to tell their stories and for fans to listen and be able to believe in who they might be watching out on the track or in the pool and or in cycling races and things like that. And so I helped them launch the podcast, Clean Sport Collective podcast in June of 2019. And we've been publishing episodes ever since. And now I'm on the board with the Clean Sport Collective as well. So I help behind the scenes as well with some of those things. But I'm just, I'm hugely passionate about the topic. It became an interest for me on my own well before I became involved with the Clean Sport Collective as someone who believes in the power and purity of of sport and who when, especially when the cycling things were happening with Lance Armstrong, I got very deep in the topic of doping and anti-doping to try to understand what was happening and to make judgments for myself. And so I just became, again, very self-educated on the topic and independently passionate about it. And so when our worlds collided in 2019, it was just something that became a really natural fit for me to jump in and help out because I believe in it so much. I'm very deep in the knowledge of how it all works behind the scenes. And, and it's just, it's something that is a way for me to give back to the sport, which I really, really enjoy. 
Yeah. And I think what you brought up about Clean Sport Collective really being proactive is so important as opposed to being reactive because it's really creating a different like vibe and message in the athletic community. And it's more uplifting. Like typically the conversation around performance enhancing drugs or doping is all, you know, negative about who got caught and what happened. And, and of course, like denying it and going to court and it's just, it's, and it's terrible and it really does happen, but it's like, you guys are kind of flipping the script and finding who are the people who are pledging to be clean athletes and talking about it in just much more of a positive light. And to refer to your podcast is such a wonderful podcast that I've listened to many episodes. Um, I just want clarification for our listeners. When you have athletes on your podcast, are those all athletes who are part of the clean sport collective, correct? Yes, they've all signed the pledge and they're all athletes, even independent of that, that we, that we believe in, you know, we're not going to put anybody on that platform that, that, you know, in even signing the pledge, you know, obviously somebody can sign the pledge and then do something differently behind the scenes. But independent of that, we also just believe in them because, you know, I think there are, as a fan, there are ways, there are telltale signs, things you can look for to look for suspicion including things like who they might associate with, what their history looks like, how they talk about doping and things like that. So in addition to signing the pledge, there are people that we believe in from other perspectives as well. And with the exception of a few athletes that we've had on, like Floyd Landis, who you know was a doper in the cycling world, who came on in a more repentant fashion to talk about his journey on the dark side. And so we've had a handful of those athletes, Floyd Landis, Tyler Hamilton being two of them. But beyond that, from the clean perspective, yes, they're, they're athletes that we want to put forward so we can tell their story and that so fans can listen and say, okay, I know at least a handful of people that I can believe in. I may not be able to believe everybody on the start line, but I can believe on those that have stood on our platform and pledge to do it the right way. Hey guys, I'm going to interrupt you for just a moment because I want to let you know about an amazing discount for an awesome company that I partner with, Inside Tracker. In fact, in this episode, we talk about blood biomarkers, which is part of what Inside Tracker does and why I want to tell you about them. They help you optimize your body using science and technology to deliver ultra personalized guidance. They use cutting edge algorithmic engines to analyze your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and workout habits, and it's all available to you right now. You can hop online and order your plan and use the code RISEUPNUTRITION, one word, all capital letters, for a whopping 25% off. Seriously, that is a good savings, 25% off. And I hope you know that I don't advertise for too many products on this podcast because I really value personalized and individualized nutrition and care. But that's exactly why I really value Inside Tracker. It helps put health into your own hands and you do get individualized results. It's based on your blood work. I use Inside Tracker myself. I use it on many of my clients. And if you use the code RISEUPNUTRITION for your Inside Tracker order, regardless of being a personal client or not, then I'm always happy to consult with you via email if you need more nutrition support. So head to InsideTracker.com to learn more. Use the code RISEUPNUTRITION. More details in the show notes. Get that 25% off amazing discount. And let's get back to the episode and this awesome conversation.
Now, I think for listeners who are at the very competitive and elite level, you know, this is a topic that they're probably more familiar with, but maybe some of our more recreational athletes, like just might not really know the prevalence uh, of this. And I don't know if you have data on this per se, but you know, what is the, the prevalence of doping or the use of performance enhancing substances at the elite level of sports as well as, you know, is it there in the recreational level as well? Ooh, that's a tough question because I think the harsh reality is probably not something we want to face. You know, it's going to depend on the sport, I think. And, but, and, but there is some data, you know, the IAAF now called the World Athletics, the international governing body for track and field did an anonymous survey associated with the world, tra- world championship several years back asking that question and, as of athletes and the data came back that 75% or more of athletes admitted to participating in performance enhancing drugs in some way at that level. That's higher than I thought. That's way higher. So yes, very high. Now, obviously we're only catching a small handful and some people will wonder why that's true. And, and the, one of the myths out there is that the, the cheating athlete is always a step ahead and that we can only catch so many through testing. And that's just simply not the reality. Yes, the cheating athletes do find innovative ways to cheat that can outsmart the system. But the biggest challenge in the sport, at least of track and field and catching the cheats is not about the testing. It's about the willingness of people to catch the the dirty athletes at the governing body level, not only at the World Athletics level, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee level, but also at the international country level base level, you know, not all countries have the protocols to go after clean athletes, whether that be because of resources or because of willingness, many of them simply don't want to find them. And so, so the, the hardest part of this challenge is that the powers that be in, in at least track and field don't actually want to catch the cheats. And so they only catch a handful so that they can look like they're doing their job when they're not. But yes, it's highly prevalent. And I think if you look at other sports, it, it will vary. But any sport where there's significant money to be made, athletes are cheating. That's just the harsh reality because the benefits of it outweigh the risks. Yeah, it's so sad. And not only are some of these governing bodies, like you said, the issues are willingness to catch the cheating athletes. And I mean, we've got other organizations across the globe that are even promoting it, right? <laughs> so, so that it's, it's really tough. And I think it's also really difficult. You know, I know even, you know, the Olympics over the past couple of years involving Russia and everything, it's just, it's just so challenging as a spectator to, to watch and kind of, I guess, kind of like believe in the sport and who's competing. And I, I'd be curious from both your your perspective, just as somebody who's passionate about running and athletes, and then of course your involvement in in Clean Sport Collective. You know, how does when somebody is you know caught or things like that, like how does that change kind of the sort I'm looking for the morale, I suppose, around a sport and believing in sport and participating in it. Like you mentioned cycling, you know, of course with Lance Armstrong and like they saw a huge dip in viewership and, you know, people really, I grew up loving the Tour de France. I watched that every summer with my dad and my dad was a huge cycling junkie and he really kind of fell out of, you know, he was discouraged by it and fell out of watching it. And and that's sad, really sad. Yeah. It's very hard as a family. You see those things happen. 
I try to to tell people of co- a couple of things. One is that it is pervasive in sports. So regardless of the sport you're you're watching, it's happening. I mean, we we if you think about the NFL, for example, playoffs are happening right now. I can guarantee you that is extremely pervasive in that sport, but the NFL is just not eager to catch those athletes. And even when they do catch them, the suspension initial suspension is only a four game suspension. So they're they're getting literally a slap on the wrist in terms of that sport. So you're watching sports where this is happening and you're just not aware or not willing to be aware or not made aware because the governing bodies don't want you to know. And in sports like track and field and cycling, for whatever reason, those sports have done a little better job and sometimes better than others at finding those athletes. And so when that happens, what I encourage people is instead of running away from it or becoming cynical, really dive into it. You know, and my journey in this topic actually began in cycling when I wanted to figure out if I could believe in Lance, even before he came out and, and publicly confessed because my spidey sense was telling me that this was too good to be true. And so, especially when some of the early whistleblowers like Floyd Landis and Tyler Hamilton started to tell their stories, I started to really dig in on their stories and dig into what they were saying. And it led me to the conclusion that Lance had to be dirty, even though he was still at that time denying it and attacking his accusers. And so what I encourage people to do is if you dig in and become educated about these topics instead of cynical, then it allows you to develop an ability to discern for yourself who you want to invest in and who you don't want to invest in. And to me, as a fan, I've gone through those periods where I'm extremely cynical, but I'm now in a place where instead of being cynical, I'm ex- I'm happy when they catch someone who's cheating because that means that's one less person dirty on a start line. And it also gives me more information about who I can cheer for and root for. And as a fan, we get to choose, we get to invest our energy wherever we want to. And if you can get educated and use our platform with the Clean Sport collective to start to get educated about who who might be clean, who might be doing it the right way, and then invest your energy in those athletes, then it becomes even more powerful when they have an amazing performance. The other thing I always remind people is you have to disconnect the podium and the medals from your fanship. You know, I know in the US, it's it's common that we only fall in love with those that are winning or getting medals. And the reality is at that level, at the Olympic level, at the highest levels of track and field, that most of the time the people on those podiums are dirty. And so you have to disconnect your fanship from performance, not in a sense that you you don't care about it, because obviously we want to see people do well and perform and you want to see them progress and you want to get excited about their performances, but you have to be willing to get excited about a fourth place finish. Because that may be the cleanest athlete in that field. And that may, and the story behind that fourth place finish might be more powerful and more inspiring than the story behind the leader who got there by taking shortcuts. And if we can embrace that mentality, that it's not just about the top of the podium or the podium, it's about the power of the stories all through the field and their journeys to get wherever they get, then that's another way as a fan that we can get excited again. 
Yeah, I love that. And I think that's what's so great about the Clean Sport Collective is you have athletes that are, you know, they're part of the collective, right? And so I think anybody listening to this, if you're like on board with what Chris is saying, you know, go to the website and check out which athletes have made that pledge and start investing your time and fanship into those athletes and getting to know them and their stories and rooting for them. And I'm curious, Chris, like since this is an independent organization, not to take the the spotlight away from you guys, because what you guys do is amazing. But are there any other organizations that are, you know, doing something similar to you? No, uh, not not in the way that we do it. And we've there there have been little things that have popped up here and there that haven't had sustained momentum. And so I I think we're the only ones doing it in a in a sustainable way that you know that's talking about doping in this way and really clean sport in this way, flip, flipping the script, as you said. And so it's, it's important work, but it's thankless work, unfortunately, because no one, you know, no one necessarily, you know, wants to talk about doping as fans or even, even when you flip the script and turn it to the positive, it's, it's sometimes hard to engage people because there are many people that would rather bury their heads in the sand and, you know, wish that it would all go away, but it's not going away. It's, it's the reality. And so again, as I say, get educated, dig in instead of run away from it. And then you can enrich your experience as a fan. You also mentioned the recreational side. And one of the things, you know, we have a pledge on there for that amateur athlete to, to take the pledge as well. And I think that's a part of the sport that needs more light as well, because each of us that is out there running a local 5k or going to qualify and do the Boston marathon, each of us has an obligation to uphold the principles as well and set examples for each other, as well as for the younger generation that will come. But I've seen things recently that are concerning in that perspective from people supplementing with testosterone. You know, there's a big push around low T, particularly for men. And, and oftentimes that's prescribed when it's not really needed. And, and so people are taking testosterone and then performing and that that's against the clean, you know, the, our clean sport pledge and against the principles of clean sport, even doing something like getting an IV before, an event, you know, I had an athlete in our community talking about going to get a hydration IV before their their race, and and they were doing it in a way that was completely innocent. But I had to inform them that that is actually against the anti doping code to get an IV in advance of an event. So if you want to operate under the principles of clean sport, then that's not something that you would do, and people. I think might criticize me for that. And they say, well, what does it matter? I'm just an amateur athlete. I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily getting an age group prize or whatever it may be. But to me, as someone who believes that the sport should be pure, whether you're doing it at the amateur level or at the elite level, then it all matters. It all matters. And you have to draw a hard line. And if we can all do that, then we hold ourselves to a high standard first, then hold others to a high standard second. I agree because I think at the amateur level, it's still like, you know, you want that even playing field, you know, that you're, you know, somebody who's working 40, 60 hours a week and runs and this is their, you know, one time a month where they get to be competitive and, and, you know, go after it and do a race. And it's just like, sometimes not, not fair, all that hard work they put into things like they, you know, 
you, you feel that I sense that I've sensed that with some people that I've competed against in my life before too, that it's like, I know it doesn't matter, but it, it does to me. And then the other issue I think too, with amateurs not seeing that it's important is at what point in an amateur athlete's career, could they potentially transition to becoming an elite athlete? And at what point do you draw the line and say, okay, now I'm not going to do what I did before? Most likely you don't. And that's probably one of the biggest issues and kind of one reason why, why performance enhancing substances can become so prevalent at the elite level is because you kind of you start thinking, oh, it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal, but maybe it'll get me to that one next level, that one next level, that one next level. And then it's like, where, when do you stop? And at that point, you know, it's going to be a lot harder too. So I think keeping a uh, sport clean across the board is, is of course the right thing, but also to think about, you know, at the amateur level, it's like, it, it still means something to people to have, you know, a pure, pure sport an equal playing field. And then to know that there's no clear, you know, line that would be drawn for people as you continue to get better, faster, stronger, whatever. So it needs to be clean from the beginning. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I mean, once you cross into the gray, it's easy to go further. And I think many amateur athletes might look at an athlete gets, that gets busted for doping and say to themselves, I would never do that. I would never take that step when we're talking about EPO or steroids or something like that. But that's not usually where it starts for those athletes either. It starts in much smaller ways and then it builds up to those things because because they start to see advantages and and even subtle things. We just had an athlete, Ryan Montgomery, who's a trail ultra endurance athlete on our Clean Sport podcast. And he talked about going into the doctor in advance of his event because he was having a little bit of an issue. And the doctor prescribed him oral steroids. And if he had taken those, it would have been against the code, even though he likely wouldn't have been tested as an event. And he, and he even asked the doctor, well, I shouldn't take that, right? Because that's against the WADA code. And, and the doctor told him that it would probably be fine because no, he wouldn't be tested, even though that was, a, that was against the, the code. And so, you know, again, that's a place where he innocently encountered that gray area and then had to make a decision against the advice of his medical practitioner to operate in a clean way. And, you know, you could say that's a small decision, but to me, no, that, a represents, big decision. that represents a turning point, right? Of going one way or, or choosing to stay in the black and white. And we all need to operate that way from my perspective, from amateurs to elites in order to uphold the standards of clean sport. I love that story you just shared because I think from a spectator or viewer standpoint, sometimes we just think like, oh, dirty athlete. But it's like there are so many hard decisions along the way. And that's one reason why, you know, Kara Goucher is just, you know, a, an amazing person because that was so hard for her to do what she did and, you know, come come out with some of the stories that she did uh, with what was going on with the Nike um, Oregon project. And because it, it's hard, you know, that's it's a culture, it's a community, it's friends, it's your it's your coaches, it's your trusted doctors. But at the end of the day, you know, being in integrity with yourself and your mission is is the best thing, but it's hard decisions to be made. And with that being said, too, I kind of wanted to give our listeners a moment to, to kind of just educate themselves. So, you know, as a dietitian, I don't know how many times throughout my career, people have asked me about things like taking hormones, horm you know, testosterone, hormone replacement therapy, or taking SARMs. This has been a big one over the last few years. And I certainly 
understand these substances and I've done a lot of research about them. But then I'm also like, wait, I'm a dietitian. I deal with food. I deal with food and dietary ingredients. And these are not dietary ingredients. And yet there's this overlap where people come to me as a dietitian thinking that I would, you know, know. And I've, like I said, I've done my due diligence to research and learn, but you know, this is, these are steroids. This is endocrinology. This is medicine. This is not natural herbal <laughs> ingredients and food. So it's, it's really interesting. And so I, the reason I want to bring this up is because there is that overlap, which is why supplement safety and knowledge about supplements is so important because there can be contamination in our supplements. But so could you just speak for our listeners and kind of, you know, what are the, like, what's a performance enhancing drug versus what's like a supplement? Well, yeah, it's a good question. There's a whole long list of performance enhancing drugs that maintained by WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, and you can go on their site and find that list. You'll find a lot of things you can't pronounce, plus the thing you do understand and pronounce like EPO and steroids and things like that. The challenge in the supplement world is that it's the complete wild west and most of those companies aren't regulated and don't have to maintain standards of their ingredients and so oftentimes what you see on the label might not even be in in the supplement and many times they'll be contaminated with other things that could be against that WADA code. And so there are, there is an organization called NSF, which is the National Sanitation Foundation, which actually started in the 50s to actually maintain health standards around food and beverage equipment. They started actually by maintaining sanitation standards around soda fountains and things like dishwashers, food, <laughs> food uh, equipment and things like that. And now, you know, they actually provide protocols for all manners of products, but including they have an NSF certified for sport designation, which would be for the supplement industry to have a certain standard to make sure that there's not contamination because one principle of clean sport that most people may may not know about and and oftentimes have a trouble accepting is this concept of strict liability which is that you are responsible as an athlete for what goes in your body whether or not you know what's going in your body and so if you were to take a tainted supplement it is and it had something in it like a steroid or or whatever it may be then you are responsible and can serve and should serve based on that principle a ban for in, in, for consuming that. So looking for that label is really important. I think it's not only important for clean sport, but it's also important for safety purposes because you want to make sure that you are taking what you think you're taking if you have reason to. And, and then, of course, the idea that you maintain strict liability, which also then goes to things like food. And there's been several high profile cases recently about contamination within meat and or pork products. And so that becomes even interesting about making sure that you're maintaining standards for what you're actually putting into your body from a food perspective so that it's not contaminated. And so it becomes a complicated world if you want it to be. But I've also recently talked to several athletes who say, look, it's not that complicated. <laughs> I keep it simple. I know what's going in my body. I'm not worried about it. And if you do that, then then you can sleep a little better at night, I think. Absolutely. I'm a, a huge fan of the NSF for sports certification. And although it's incredibly important for athletes that are competing 
at the elite or pro level or in collegiate as well, where you're also drug tested. That's the only, that's the only supplements I would take myself is something that's NSF certified for sport. There are a few other, um, independent supplement agencies that are great, like BSCG and informed choice for sport. And then we also have the USP verification, which is just on simple vitamins and minerals that you might see at your, you know, Walgreens, Walmart, this uh, US pharmacopoeia stamp. And so these are things to look for. And whether or not you are a high level athlete, it's like, just as you said, Chris, you want to make sure that what you're putting in your body is, is the good stuff. It is what you think it is. You know, if you, if you want to take creatine, just as an example, you want to make sure you're actually taking creatine and you're not taking, you know, potato starch. And this is where the supplement industry really has such little regulation that you could be paying $50 for a canister of potato starch and you just didn't know it. So it's, you know, if you're going to take an electrolyte supplement with sodium and potassium, which are natural, normal vitamins and and minerals for athletes and might even be good, you want to make sure that you're actually getting your 300 milligrams of sodium that can help your performance and not something that's, you know, subpar. So I think looking for those certifications on supplements, it's, it's, it's yes to be a clean athlete, but further than that, it's, it's to know what you're putting in your body and give yourself the best stuff, right? And that's the interesting thing. People are so interested about like nutrition and putting the best stuff in their bodies. And then they go and buy these crazy supplements that are like, <laughs> you have no clue what's in that, right? right. So I've, I've got the cleansport.org uh, website up with me right now, which is the Clean Sport Collective website. And you actually have a list of your partners, um, including some nutrition and hydration brands, if I can give them a shout out, brands like Picky Bars, Noon, Clean Athlete, Sound Probiotics. So from a brand perspective, these are companies that have sort of made a clean sport collective pledge, but just from you know the, the product standpoint instead of the athlete well, it's not standpoint. just from the product standpoint. It's, it's from the product standpoint, but also from a sponsorship standpoint. Ah. So we're, we're a big believer in the power of the sponsors to set yeah. the tone on this topic. And there are many that refuse to, and that can create a negative culture around this topic. But all of those are not only pledging to put forward clean products, but also pledging to not sponsor athletes that have, that are serving a ban or have been banned. And so they're, going to be the ones that help financially hold accountable the athlete world as well, because there are certain brands that that have refused to do that or are willing to sponsor and support athletes that are doing things the wrong way. And so it's both it's both sides of that equation. Yeah, I love that. Well, Chris, this has just been super informative to talk about, you know, performance enhancing drugs, the, the importance of keeping sport clean, what the Clean Sport Collective is doing, and then also just, you know, your personal running philosophies and coaching. All of that has been wonderful. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, talking to our listeners. Where can uh, where can our listeners learn more about you, listen to your podcast, you know, follow you on social media? Where can they reach out? Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram at Rogue Chris or on Twitter at Chris McClung. And then you can follow my company at Rogue Running. You can follow Clean Sport uh, at Clean Sport Co. That's Clean Sport Co. on Instagram and Twitter, where we talk about these topics if you want to join in the conversation. And then, of course, you can listen to the podcast on any platform, you know, any podcast platform, the Running Rogue podcast or the Clean Sport Collective podcast. My, my rogue podcasts are all coaching focused. So I, I focus on talking, talking about 
coaching topics so that the individual athlete can make educated choices about their own training. And then, and that's a weekly podcast. And then clean sport is typically weekly as well. We do that in seasons. And so we're not recording right now, but we will have episodes starting again in February. And then we typically do those weekly when we're in season. So check it out. Would love, would love for people to listen and follow and join the conversation. Yeah. Awesome. We certainly will. And Chris, I always wrap up all my podcast episodes with uh, some more fun questions real quick. You ready to play along? Let's do it. Sure. Right. Rapid fire. I love it. <laughs> if there is one food you could eat every single day for the rest of your life, but never get sick of it, what would it be? <laughs> well, I have a sweet tooth. And so dark chocolate, it would probably be the first thing on my mind there. It, I love dark chocolate. I do get sick of it because I eat too much. I you know I get stomach so stomach <laughs> issues. So if you know if I could be guaranteed to not have that, dark chocolate would be the thing. The the thing if I had to choose something savory, it would probably be good old Texas barbecue. Uh huh. Yeah. Have you lived in Texas your whole life or yeah? Born and raised in Dallas. Have lived in Dallas, Houston, and Austin. Did a brief stint in Portland for three months in grad school, but have been Texas otherwise. Yeah, Texas barbecue is a thing. I've just been living here in San Antonio for three years now, and it's the yeah. real thing. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So it uh, seems like an obvious answer, but worth asking anyways. Chris, what is your favorite sport to participate in? <laughs> oh, you might throw us for a loop here. Running for sure, running for sure. But um, but I love soccer as well. I still play, and my, my kids play. And so I've, I've been – it's been fun to get back into soccer with them and playing with them. So that would be a close second. Yeah. How about as a spectator? What's your favorite sport to watch and be a fan of? I'm a huge soccer fan from that perspective. And of course I love running, but soccer, you know, might be at the top of the list right now. I'm a big fan of the the national teams, especially the U S women's national team went to the world cup in France and saw them win in 2019. And I'm just a huge fan of not only what they do on the field, but what they do off the field. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Such an inspiring team of women, which leads us to our final question. If there is a female athlete out there that you could give a shout out to for just being a role model, being what I call fierce fit and fueled and somebody in your personal life or, or, or more well-known professionally, who would that female athlete be and why? Oh, that's tough because there's a lot. There's a lot of them. I've got to give a shout out here to Kara Goucher, my co-host for the Clean Sport Collective podcast. She's a friend now, but also an inspiration to me. I don't think people can comprehend what she's been through to speak out on the topics of of doping in the sport because the the whistleblower, the the quote whistleblower journey is not an easy one, and she has faced. All, all manner of challenges in that journey and the sacrifice that she's made personally and professionally because of her willingness to tell the truth is just incomprehensible, I think. But beyond that, she's just a great person. What you see is what you get with her. She's as amazing, you know, if you get to know her as a friend, as you, as you might see, you know, getting to know her from afar as a fan and, and it's just a huge honor for me to work with her and to be a part of promoting clean sport by her side. Absolutely. Well, Chris, thanks again for coming on, sharing your wisdom, knowledge, information, and we'll be happy to follow along and support the Clean Sport Collective. Thank you, Lindsay, for having me. 
I really hope you enjoyed that episode and thanks for listening. But before I let you go, I have free resources that you can have access to right away, right now, so that you can start fueling your body as a fierce, fit, and fueled female athlete. First, I have your Red S recovery race. If you've ever wondered if you might be struggling with Red S, curious to learn more, or know you have Red S and are looking to recover fast, then you can head to www.riseupnutritionrun.com slash red S and download the Red S recovery race. See how you place and figure out the next steps to recovery. Plus, while there, I have a few other great resources for you, including three nutrition secrets that every elite athlete swears by and access to our private Facebook community, Female Athlete Nutrition. So again, to gain access to all of this, head to riseupnutritionrun.com slash red S that's backslash R E D S. And you can gain access and get the help you need fast. Too many girls and women and female athletes struggle with nutrition, but you don't have to any longer become fierce, fit and fueled links in the show notes, and I'll see you next time.